Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi and welcome everyone to our latest podcast of criminal cases. In the early 20th century, with the advent of aviation, American pilot Charles Lindbergh made a name for himself by making his famous New York to Paris crossing in 31 hours aboard his single-engine monoplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, an unparalleled achievement that instantly propelled him into history and elevated him to the rank of a global superstar. While he was at the peak of his professional career, Charles Lindbergh and his wife Anne Morrow faced an unprecedented tragedy. On March 1, 1932, Chaz, the 20-month-old baby disappeared under mysterious circumstances, an unfortunate victim of kidnapping, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, soon became the top news story of the century, the most famous and controversial abduction of its time. When a man named Bruno Hopman was finally arrested for the kidnapping and murder of the infant, it seemed like his incarceration might put people's minds at ease. However, controversy surrounded his conviction quickly, perhaps too quickly according to the many people who believed that there had been a terrible slip of justice. Now, let's take a trip into the America of the 1930s and delve deeper into the mystery of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. It was 7 a.m. on May 20, 1927. On the tarmac at the Roosevelt Field, the final preparations were underway. The event to take place caused quite a stir among all the employees of this little airfield in Long Island. This young man definitely had his mind made up and was not going to change it. Everyone hoped and prayed that the flight would be postponed for one, two, three, or perhaps even four months, giving enough time to prepare for everyone technically and emotionally. The weather for the last few days had been on their side since the rain and adverse conditions persisted like a warning as if to postpone the intrepid Charlie from climbing aboard his flying engine to meet his worst fate. In the evening before the flight, things took a quick turn. The weather forecast announced clear conditions but only slight. I'm flying tomorrow, declared the young man, quickly ending his conversation with a technician at the other end of the line. He left his dinner unfinished and his friends high and dry at the restaurant as he got into his car and rushed straight to the airfield to get ready. Caught off guard, nobody thought anything was amiss. Things progressed quickly thereafter. The plans were finally about to be fruitful. I'm ready. Departure is at 7.52 tomorrow morning. At 6 a.m. the following morning, reporters and townsmen assembled filled with anticipation trembling with impatience and fighting to make their place closer to the action. 
They watched slightly bemused as the pilot and his mother shared their goodbyes. She bid her son farewell as if he were off to a camping trip, while in reality his mission might very well cost him his life. Charles Lindbergh was a stubborn yet resourceful young aviator. 25 years old, blonde as a cob of wheat, piercing blue eyes, an athletic build with a slightly tanned complexion, white teeth, and carrying a pleasant disposition in the face of any challenge. He was a beaming example of the American male. The mission, or rather the challenge that he gave himself, was to cross the North Atlantic aboard the single-engine plane between New York and Paris under 48 hours, without a co-pilot and without a stopover. Charles Lindbergh wasn't sure that he would be successful, but he decided to risk everything and try it anyway. No risk, no reward. That was his motto. Like many other perfectionists, he often doubted his talent. Yet he was a highly experienced pilot. He had served as a military pilot postman and an airline pilot, and his skills as a mechanic were unrivaled. His plane, a single-engine monoplane, christened Spirit of St. Louis, was far from being capable of withstanding the harsh climate and the lengthy trip over the Atlantic. It had taken more than months to assemble the plane, and there were still some problems that needed attention. But Lindbergh planned to use that to his advantage. He knew the engine like the back of his hand. He had tested its resistance several times, patched it up, repaired, and primed it. A few days earlier, when the exact location of the trip was not yet finalized, Lindbergh decided to replace the radio in the monoplane with a large reserve gas tank placed between the motor and the cockpit. He also got rid of the windshield that was supposed to guide him while flying and putting a periscope that could give him directions once he was airborne. The airfield mechanic stood by and idly watched the flurry of activity. If the mission failed, Lindbergh would be the third pilot to be lost at the sea within the last two weeks. Not more than 15 days earlier, a small biplane called White Bird with two French pilots on board, Charles Nangueser and Francois Collai, disappeared during its first non-stop flight from French capital to New York. News of the tragedy caused shockwaves on both sides of the Atlantic. What kind of fool would still want to climb inside a flying coffin just for the adrenaline rush and adventure? Why? Lindbergh, of course. The disappearance of the two French pilots had not discouraged the young aviator. It in fact strengthened his conviction that anything new always requires its share of sacrifices, even if they were sometimes fatal. Raymond Ortega, a wealthy New York hotel owner, offered $25,000 reward to Charles Lindbergh if he could successfully fly over the Atlantic by himself. The young man accepted the offer for the sheer adventure of it, as much for the money itself. At 7.30 a.m., Charles Lindbergh, dressed in his brown overalls with large glasses over his eyes, gestured to anxious crowd who came to cheer him on his daring mission. Possibly his last, they thought. It was too late to turn back now. He flashed his biggest smile and bravely took off, never abandoning his sense of humor. He said, the condemned man says goodbye. The crowd was forbidden from bringing wreaths of flowers as it might be a jinx or a sign that the mission would fail. Instead, while a few women took out their handkerchiefs to dab their eyes, the men waved their hats as a way of saying goodbye. Here you go, Charlie. At 7.52 a.m., a loud engine roar and an exhaust blast, the spirit of St. Louis took off from Roosevelt Field with the young Charles Lindbergh on board. Soon, he was nothing more than a small black dot in the vast gray morning sky. Back on land, the countdown with a great deal of apprehension began. The first few hours of the flight went by uneventfully. It was an exhilarating experience. 
Below, Lindbergh could see Long Island pass by, with White House surrounded by green lawns. A few meters away arrived Ellis Island, the gateway for all immigrants who came to the blessed land called the United States of America. He leaned his head slightly forward, and through the porthole, he could see the Statue of Liberty approaching, much larger than he remembered. After a final glance at his watch, he headed north for a 5,800-kilometer adventure with around 3,200 over the ocean. The Atlantic was immense and vast. He had been too anxious to sleep the night before his departure, and now Charles Lindbergh was struggling to stay awake. To reinvigorate himself, he descended to three feet above the water. The height of the waves, however, discouraged him from going any lower, so he quickly ascended back to normal elevation. Late afternoon, the very next day, while still on his solo flight between heaven and sea, Charles Lindbergh spotted two seagulls flying towards him, a sure sign that land was not far away. But how could that be? Was it over already? I'm approaching the coast of Ireland, he said aloud to himself with a big smile on his lips. Thank goodness the worst was over. The ocean was behind him now. He didn't die like everyone thought he would. Nor did he disappear into thin air. He was safe and closer than ever to his goal. As night fell, the aviator arrived in France. The final destination of the journey. He crossed over Cherbourg and was headed towards Eiffel Tower. It was only a matter of a few minutes that the Bourget airfield, where he was supposed to land, was not very far, as indicated by the map in front of him. On land, the announcement of the triumphant arrival of Charles Lindbergh was on everyone's lips. About 200,000 people from all over Paris rushed to greet him. As expected, he landed on May 21, around 10.30 p.m. He had won his bet, rose to the challenge, and silenced all his critics who believed that he would fail. The spirit of St. Louis also played a role in his success. He was now a star, and young men and women, visibly excited, had already started to climb aboard his aircraft before swiftly being pushed away by the law and order forces. Good news traveled quickly. Nobody in Paris slept at night, and it was still like afternoon in the United States, and people had begun to celebrate. The country's childhood prodigy had now become America's conquering young hero who feared nothing and dared the impossible. France had fallen under the spell of this blonde young man and his sincere attitude. Charles was intimidated by the crowd at Bruguet, who wanted to embrace and carry him off triumphantly. The next day, he was received by the President of the Republic in person, after which he headed to Belgium and London over the next few days. He returned to the United States aboard a military cargo plane, the USS Memphis. His monoplane was disassembled and loaded into the cargo hold to be later assembled upon arrival. For his homecoming, the man, who became known as the Lone Eagle, was greeted with honors befitting the global star that he had become. He rode atop a black sedan in a parade on Fifth Avenue, the Union Jack was waved on both sides of the street, and confetti was thrown into the air. It was an unprecedented national event, thanks to the spineuring young man's determination. America had been thrusting into the future. The Ortig Prize of $25,000 was awarded to Lindbergh by Raymond Ortig himself at a gala event at the Carnegie Hall. For Americans everywhere, Charles Lindbergh had become Lindy the Lucky. All baby boys born in the year of his trip were baptized Charles Augustus in his honor. In New York, in the bustling multi-ethnic neighborhood of Harlem, young people created a dance called Lindy Hop, a kind of rhythmic street foxtrot that mimicked the movement of monoplane in the air. He became an icon for young people of all backgrounds, always understated and willing to sign autographs. 
In addition to the warm welcome that he received from the public, there was also other honors and official recognitions. Charles Lindbergh was appointed as a colonel in the Air Force and was the vice president of the commercial American airline Pan Am. He later had the responsibility of standardizing commercial transatlantic flights for the general public who wished to travel to Europe. Yet, despite this stunning success, Lindbergh decided to remain a modest and down-to-earth man. He called himself a regular airline mechanic, a craftsman who had slightly more endurance than others who gave up fearing a crushing defeat or possible death. The reason for this sincere modesty was because of the Lutheran education the young pilot received, an education based on hard work, seriousness, a typical Scandinavian trait of always wanting to strike the right balance, of never putting anyone down to elevate and distinguish oneself. Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born in 1902 in Detroit and was the son of a Swedish couple who immigrated to the United States at the end of the 19th century. His father, Charles Sr., was a lawyer and his mother, Evangeline Lund, was the first woman admitted into the University of Physics Chemistry at Michigan State in an era when scientific study was only limited to men. Charles Jr. was the only son of this prominent and respectable couple. He had always been passionate about traveling and from a very young age, felt the need to explore the skies. Consequently, while he had been preparing to enroll in Michigan State University to study chemistry, he dropped everything to study mechanics. With constant encouragement from his mother, he proved to be very gifted and quickly rose to the top of his class. In 1922, he bought his first small plane, which he flew for a few test runs and offered his services to anyone who wanted to take up flying. Following the worldwide success of this transatlantic crossing, Charles Lindbergh turned into the most eligible bachelor and many wealthy industrious families hoped that he could be their future son-in-law. In 1929, he married Anne Morrow, the daughter of diplomat Dwight Morrow, who was then the United States ambassador to Mexico and had one of the biggest fortunes in the country. The wedding was celebrated like a major national event and congratulatory letters came from all over the country. Married life was peaceful. Charles and Anna, though not really in love, got along well with mutual reputation. Their individual traits worked well together. Both were level-headed, intelligent, and charming. Like her husband, Anne was passionate about flying machines and often practiced her piloting skills with her favorite pilot. The Morrows were one of the most wealthy and prestigious families in the country. They owned several properties in New York, Boston, and two villas in California. The couple went to Hawaii for their honeymoon, a place that Charles Lindbergh loved his whole life. The couple's first child, little Charles Jr., affectionately known as Chaz, was born on June 22, 1930. The infant's birth was ecstatically celebrated. From then on, everything that the Lindbergh family did was published in public domains and they were constantly in the spotlight. A large crowd of reporters had gathered to take a picture of infant Chaz leaving the maternity ward in the arms of his mother. The now-expanding Lindbergh family spent many happy days in their homes scattered across New York, Detroit, Boston, and Los Angeles. They enjoyed all the comforts befitting people of their social standing, mostly due to Anne's father's wealth. The infant had two nannies and a chambermaid who looked after his every need 24 hours a day. When Dwight Morrow, Charles Lindbergh's father-in-law, died in 1931, his daughter inherited a considerable amount of fortune, including a property surrounded by a park of several hectares with a pool, a tennis court, and a lake. This particular house, located in Hopewell, New Jersey, became a weekend retreat. Gala balls and prestigious dinners were held there, and members of New York's upper class were anxious to be included. 
This was during the heights of prohibition and alcohol was strictly regulated, but the cases of wine and champagne never stopped flowing at Lindbergh's residence. At the end of February 1932, while winter raged on, the couple left their New York apartment to spend a few days at their secondary residence in Hopewell. The infant Chaz and his nanny, Betty Go, had already left a day earlier. Chaz had caught a cold earlier that week and his nanny had spent her nights at his bedside to care for him. His mother thought that as a short stay in the fresh air would do him some good. The baby, who everyone affectionately referred to as Little One, was now a little man of 20 months, with a head of a blonde curls and a demeanor that was much too serious for his age. When he was in napping, he spent all his time babbling and already knew how to say daddy, mommy, nanny, and plain. He was a little prodigy. His father wanted to wait until he was just a little bit older before taking him aboard the Spirit of St. Louis for his maiden flight. He had many plans in mind for his young child and had imagined him joining a prestigious naval academy in Cape Cod. But perhaps the child would want to take up cinema or something else. Anything was possible. His profession hadn't yet been established, but times were changing and the pilot already had his sights set on the future. Late on the evening of March 1, 1932, after everyone finished dinner, Charles Lindbergh sent his wife to bed and retired to the library to have a last after-dinner drink and to leaf through the latest issue of the Reader's Digest. There was a heavy silence that hung over the house. Suddenly, he heard a loud crash, like something very heavy had just fallen. He got up, looked around the house, and then rushed upstairs. Instinctively, he made his way to the infant's room. He opened the door, and lo and behold... He found the shutters wide open and a cold wind rustling the curtains. Lindbergh ran to the baby's crib. It was empty. Panicked, he quickly looked around the room, under the bed and under the bedsheets. Traces of mud smudged the carpet and below the window, he saw a long wooden ladder. In the corner of the room, sitting atop a radiator, he found a folded piece of paper. Ideas began to raise in Lindbergh's head. Without thinking, he grabbed the letter and read it. Dear sir, prepare $50,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in fives. In the next two to four days, we will tell you when and where you will come to collect the ransom. If you value your son's life, do not involve the police or warn any reporters. Understood? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This missive was filled with grammatical errors, as if it had been written by someone who had limited knowledge of English. Soon, the whole house knew about the tragedy. Chaz had been kidnapped. Anne was in the grips of a nervous breakdown and her husband tried to calm her as best as he could. The staff, equipped with a flashlight and kerosene lamps, searched every nook and cranny of the entire park and the cellar. However, the baby was nowhere to be found. The following day, the property was overrun with the police and the press. Law enforcement officers from the state of Michigan, accompanied by their sniffer dogs, raked every inch of the Hopewell property without finding any evidence. Just below the baby's room, investigators found two sets of footprints, apparently left by large shoes with coarse rubber soles. In the living room, three inspectors surrounded the Lindbergh couple who were still in shock. The household staff were also detained and questioned if they had heard any noise. They either stated they were already asleep when the incident occurred or that they hadn't heard anything. When he was eventually questioned, the pilot recalled that on the previous evening, before going upstairs to check his son's room, he had clearly heard a kind of crunch coming from outside, a loud noise like a ricocheting wave. The dog hadn't even barked once, which was strange because she usually becomes agitated as soon as she hears someone approach. Charles Lindbergh showed the police the letter he found on the radiator. The letter was thoroughly scrutinized. It was an important piece of information. Like all ransom notes, it was impersonal and anonymous. As with Lindbergh, the numerous grammatical errors did not go unnoticed. It was written by a German, said one of the officers. How could you be sure of that? Asked Charles Lindbergh, taken aback. I know because I served in Germany during the war. The style and the expressions are those used by someone who speaks German but hadn't yet perfected our language. The officer concluded confidently. The other items that raised questions were concerning the ladder that had been placed directly below little Chaz's bedroom. His kidnappers knew exactly where he was sleeping. Betty Go, the baby's nanny, was thoroughly questioned by the police. After a couple of hours, she was eventually exonerated. As for the British chambermaid, while at Sharp, her behavior was strangely suspicious and did not fail to attract the investigator's attention. When it was her turn to be questioned, she recounted that she was at the movies last night, only to change her story and state that she had spent the night at her fiancé's house. Conflicting stories were nothing new for the police. They had promised to return the next day to clarify things. On March 2, 1932, all of America woke up to the terrible news that the child of the Lone Eagle was kidnapped. Everyone was overwhelmed. Who could have committed such a heinous act and brought such despair to the young parents? The news of the child's abduction was not limited to the United States, as newspapers from all over the world reported the incident. Within two days, Americans, Canadians, the French, Belgian, and Brits lived through the same anguish as the Lindbergh family day in and day out. In the United States, J. Edgar Hoover, General Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, commonly known as the FBI, made a public statement during a press conference. With a somber expression and dressed in dark suit, he made a promise to the entire nation. We will move heavens and earth to find the kidnappers. The Lindbergh kidnapping case monopolized the public's attention. It not only affected every American family, but also some big-time gangsters. Consequently, Al Capone, the famous mafia leader from Chicago, declared from his prison cell in New Jersey that he too was upset by this event. He even offered a reward of $10,000 for whoever was able to locate the child. 
And that was not all. He promised the support of the entire network to help with the search. In the end, it didn't seem like such a bad idea, and albeit reluctantly, the FBI chief finally agreed to accept the Mafia's assistance. As for Charles Lindbergh, he contacted the chief of police of the state of New Jersey, Norman Shorskoff, to launch an inquiry. Shorskoff had extensive experience in handling kidnapping cases for ransom. This event coincided with the era of the rising talking pictures and every news release and statement was filmed and rebroadcasted on the radio since television was still not available in most American homes. Theaters and movie houses made up for this by offering to rebroadcast the statements and latest news to the public on the big screen. Well aware of the monumental task ahead, Norman Schwarzkopf quickly became zealous. Unlike the FBI, he bluntly refused to collaborate with Al Capone to find the infant's abductors. Having the mafia intruded into the lives of honest people was exactly what he didn't want. Stubbornly, Schwarzkopf declared that he was more than capable of taking charge of everything himself without the help from anyone else. As a result, J. Edgar Hoover, who had been excluded from the case, was extremely mortified. People from Michigan were deeply divided. One side, there were those who were under the watchful eye of the FBI and who had accepted assistance from the local gangsters to act as intermediaries. And on the other side, there was Norman Schwarzkopf, who decided to go alone and refused any outside help, however minimal. Initial investigations led to a man named John Francis Condon, a local celebrity. Condon was a retired 74-year-old former professor who was originally from the Bronx. He was passionate about airplanes and the paranormal. He was described as a whimsical old man, eccentric and who had the annoying habit of writing about hoaxes, which he regularly published in the local press. His letters filled with fantastic, far-fetched ideas were the product of his hyper-imagination. However, it was important to give him a listen despite his reputation as a compulsive liar. At the police headquarters in Detroit, John made a strange declaration. A few days after the Lindbergh baby was abducted, a man with a strong German or Scandinavian accent had asked him to write a letter on his behalf. The man, who had refused to reveal his identity or show his face, agreed to meet in a cemetery. John loved adventures, even when they were dangerous, so he went to the meeting at nightfall as planned. When he arrived, he was approached by two men wearing hoods. They both spoke with a strong foreign accent, a very distinct German accent. They made a strange confession. They were ringleaders in a gang of six who were responsible for the kidnapping of the Lindbergh family, and they were waiting for a significant ransom. They asked John to act as an intermediary between them and the police because of his experience at writing missives. The police believed only half of the old man's story. However, they agreed to give him free reigns to act as the gang had requested. The very next day, photos of the Lindbergh baby were posted all over the country, on shop doors, in malls, in theaters, and in factories. In the New York Times, a $10,000 reward was offered by the parents of the missing child, and a copy of the ransom note found in the nursery was published in the papers. The details of little Chaz's physical measurements were also provided in order to help with the search. Take a good look at the face of this little baby and memorize it. He is 20 months old, with curly blonde hair and pale complexion and can only say a few words. He weighs about 13 kilograms and can almost walk by himself. We are calling on everyone across the country to work with us. If you happen to come across a small infant matching this description, you should immediately contact the closest police headquarters. Yet, despite the press frenzy, the regular statements from the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and the stories from Professor Condon weeks ago had gone by and still there was no progress. 
Charles Lindbergh decided to make arrangements to pay the ransom demanded by his son's kidnappers. The U.S. Central Bank suggested that he use gold as it was easier to identify than paper currency. The sum of $50,000 was withdrawn and wrapped in a metal box. The pilot accompanied by John deposited the ransom at the indicated location on the evening of April 2, 1932, which was a month after his son's kidnapping. In the dark of the night, he heard a man say that the baby was safe and sound and that he was aboard a boat at a port in Massachusetts. They finally had a solid lead. Lindbergh was extremely shaken by the news and the very next day he flew to Massachusetts, but his search was in vain. It had now been a month since the investigation had begun. Charles and Anne Lindbergh were on the brink of despair. They had paid $50,000 as demanded and waited in vain, naively believing the promise the kidnappers made in their ransom note. Eventually, the waiting became unbearable as the couple decided to escape to New York, leaving their property in Hopewell at the hands of the police. In the newsrooms of the tabloid press, reporters were beginning to twiddle with their thumbs and counted the days since the kidnapping took place. The hustle and bustle of the early days following the news of the abduction had given way to a journalistic void. In the meantime, the ongoing, unsolved mystery started to irritate readers. This was, after all, America, where the public's interest in a story could disappear overnight if dragged for too long. All over the country and outside the United States, the Lindbergh show, the subject that had been the focus of news stories since the event first occurred, gradually began to fade away. Varyingness had taken over, primarily because the investigation was stagnated with no new developments. Nobody knew that stranger events were about to take place. On the evening of May 12, 1932, two truck drivers, Orville Wilson and William Allen, stopped their vehicle at the edge of the road in the township of Hopewell, which was 8 kilometers south of the Lindbergh family's property. While the two men got out of the truck to relieve themselves, they made a gruesome discovery. In the thicket, they spotted the remains of some white clothing and a small, badly decayed corpse. Tiny skull had started decomposing, and insects had already feasted on the remains. The body was that of the little Charles Jr. The police, as well as the Lindbergh family, were immediately notified. The infant's body was immediately transported to Detroit Central Hospital for an autopsy, which quickly showed that the baby had died shortly after it had been abducted. This new discovery led the case to regain its lost momentum. The press grew relentless after the cumbersome calm of the last few weeks. Just as they had two months earlier, reporters, photographers, and sound engineers arrived in a possession of automobiles. Some went to the Hopewell property, others to the central hospital. Reporters covered all the macabre details in order to sell their newspaper. Even respectable papers like the Times jumped on the bandwagon. There was no shortage of eye-catching headlines. The Lindbergh baby was found decapitated in the woods in Hopewell Township. Nurses identifies baby from its toes. What happened to the kidnappers? What were J. Edgar Hoover's men doing? Michigan's German community is in police crosshairs. In the meantime, the New Jersey police requestioned all of Lindbergh's household staff. While at Sharp, a chambermaid, who probably feared yet another round of interrogations, committed suicide by swallowing cyanide. The real reason, however, was never determined. But the police were accused of having pushed the young woman to the brink of their brutality to make her confess to things she had no knowledge of. Disconcerted by this latest turn of events, the Lindberghs decided to briefly leave the United States and get away from media harassment who neither respected their grief nor their privacy. On September 1934, about two years after the tragedy, while the Lindbergh kidnapping case remained unsolved, something new took over the headlines and upset the course of events. 
In a service station in Brooklyn, New York, the station's owner contacted the police to deliver them an important piece of information. He recalled that one of his customers had paid with a gold coin that was given in the ransom money by Charles Lindbergh to the kidnappers. Who gave it to you? Some guy. How would I know anything about it? Do you have his address or any idea where he lives? No, but I did note his license plate number. What kind of car was it? A blue dot sedan? What was the man's name? Hoffman or Hotman, something like that. A German. At that moment, the police had the feeling that they were on the right track for the first time. It could not be a coincidence. Too many pieces fit together. First of all, there was the gold coin that probably slipped out while paying the service station attendant, a man called Hoffman. Then there was a letter full of grammatical errors that had been found in Lindbergh's baby's room two years earlier, which even handwriting experts asserted was written by someone German. Two days later, Michigan police announced that they had captured the kidnapper and murderer of the Lindbergh baby. The suspect was a carpenter who had recently migrated from Germany named Bruno Richard Hauptmann. A woodworker by trade, 35 years old, tall, dark-haired, with a shifty expression and speaking broken English. Hauptmann was a perfect candidate for the electric chair. In those days in the United States, a great distrust and latent xenophobia towards anyone who was German, Italian, Jews or Catholic persisted throughout the society. For many Americans, only a jealous foreigner, cruel and envious would have been capable of committing such a heinous act. The police thought so too. Bruno's home was immediately searched. In a double-locked shed, the police found the other gold currency valuing $12,000, some $5 notes, as well as a small revolver. When asked about this money, Bruno Hauptmann declared that he had saved it since the time he began working in a carpentry workshop. That was it. Anna Hauptmann, Bruno's wife and his boss, testified on his behalf. Anna defended her husband and provided him with an alibi. On the night that the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped, he had apparently gone to pick her up at work around 9 p.m., after which they went directly home. His boss added that Bruno Hauptmann had worked the entire day on March 1, 1932, and that his time card could prove it. Anna's own boss also swore that she had indeed seen the blue sedan parked outside the factory gates at 9 p.m. When examining the suspect's timesheet, investigators discovered that he had hastily left work two days after the ransom had been paid. Only someone with something to hide would leave work in such a hurry. He was then asked to recopy a paragraph in English. Excellent idea. Hauptmann's tentative writing, riddled with spelling mistakes, managed to convince the investigators of his involvement in the child's kidnapping and murder. Upon hearing the news, Anne and Charles Lindbergh, now parents of a second child born during their voluntary exile in England, rushed back to the United States. The case was once again in the news. Reporters were back to rubbing their hands together gleefully. Newspaper sales skyrocketed, and Bruno Hopkins' photo flashed on all the editorial pages. An enormous relief for the collective consensus and retribution for the police, declared the Toronto Daily. At that point, anything was permissible if it meant further implicating the prime suspect in the case. Eyewitnesses appeared out of nowhere to swear that they had seen him prowling outside Lindbergh's property. His colleagues spoke of a secretive side and strange ways. Hoffman's life story was splashed all over the newspaper, a story that tarnished his character. Reports dwelled on his flaws. He was a former soldier in the garrison of Emperor William II. He had deserted his service, taking a uniform, pistol and ammunition with him. Then he became a member of a gang specialized in burglarizing homes and had mostly killed a man, a fact which prompted him to jump on the first boat headed for the New World. 
he then reinvented himself as a carpenter and got married to Anna Schwartz, a young Polish girl he had met upon arrival at Ellis Island, where they had been placed in forced quarantine after arriving in New York. The trial of Bruno Hauptmann, killer and kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby, began on January 2, 1935, in the New York prosecutor's office. From the very first day of the trial, the entire building was swarmed with reporters from countries all over the world, including Canada, Great Britain, France, Germany, and Belgium. For the first time in the judicial history of the United States, cameras were permitted inside the courtroom to film the entire trial. Dressed in three-piece suit, his hair neatly combed and his hands shackled, Bruno Hauptmann observed the proceedings from his box. His lawyer, Edward J. Riley, known for his fiery arguments and sanguine temperament, was seated in the seat below. The courtroom was packed and those who couldn't find an empty seat remained standing and craned their necks to catch every single minute of the show. Indeed, it was time when trials were considered entertainment, much like the theater or the circus. The tone of the trial was immediately established. David Wilhelm, counsel of the prosecution, practically insulted the accused and Edward Riley almost jumped down his throat. Some key witnesses were missing, including Bruno Hauptmann's boss, Professor John Condon, and the two truck drivers who found the infant's body. Besides the witness, certain important pieces of information from the file also went missing. Most importantly, Bruno Hauptmann's timesheet as well as the ransom note. Some of the witnesses who were present changed their story. Like the managers at the factory where Anna Hauptmann worked, stated that she was no longer sure if the accused had come to pick up her employee at 9 p.m. or later on the night when the Lindbergh baby had been abducted. The ladder that the kidnapper had used to climb up the baby's bedroom was presented to the court and an expert in carpentry would examine it from all angles. The whole thing made Bruno Hauptmann snicker. He stated that the ladder was much too unsteady and too coarse to have been made by a skilled craftsman like himself. What a nerve! But the carpentry expert appointed by the court to study the ladder in question provided irrefutable evidence. At least two of the bars came from Bruno Hauptmann's attic. However, a later examination of the attic would disprove the theory. To sway public opinion to his side, the prosecuting attorney appealed to the people's sympathy and their patriotism. Who, apart from a foreigner, would be capable of committing such a heinous act on the child of someone who was a hero to all Americans? He asked. In his opinion, the accused German background was enough for him to be able to kill someone in cold blood and even a toddler. The now infamous trial of the century lasted two months and was pushed to the forefront of the American judicial scene, even going so far as to eclipse the trial of the framed criminal duo Bonnie and Clyde, which was taking place during the same period. As the hearings continued, Edward J. Riley, the very angered and upset lawyer for Bruno Hauptmann, started to lose his head and narrowly missed coming to blows with the opposing counsel, David Wilhelm. On more than one occasion, he even went so far as to calling him a dirty Jew and a storefront lawyer in front of everyone. But the case was already coming to its conclusion and while no one dared to say it out loud, everyone knew what the verdict was going to be. On February 13, 1935, after two months of verbal jostling with his opponents, the prosecuting attorney stated, With respect to this arrest, it has been clearly established that on the night of March 1, 1932, the accused Bruno Richard Hauptmann had climbed a ladder outside the Lindbergh's family property and that he had abducted and killed their baby. Consequently, I call for the death penalty. The jurors then retired to deliberate, for the first time in an almost religious silence. This Radio New Jersey on April 3, 1936, Bruno Richard Hauptmann was executed at 8.45 p.m. for the murder of the Lindbergh baby. And that was the end of it. 
he died on the electric chair without ever admitting his crime. Somebody had to pay for the crime, and it was Bruno Hartmann. Him or someone else. It didn't matter as long as it generated the desired media hype and filled the coffers of newsrooms which were on the brink of bankruptcy. It was later discovered that Bruno Hartmann had paid his incompetent lawyer $25,000 and that he had refused the $80,000 offer by a famous paper for his confession. A few months after Hauptmann's execution, witnesses confessed that they had been bribed by the police to make false testimonies in order to further implicate the accused. Under pressure from the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, new legislation concerning the crimes of child kidnapping and abduction had been voted into the American Senate and is still relevant today. Charles and Anne Lindbergh returned to England in 1935. They had five other children. After the Second World War, the Lone Eagle, who had won the hearts of all Americans, was discovered to be a tremendous Nazi sympathizer and an influential member of the secret society of the Freemasons. These two revelations caused long-term damage to his reputation. Upon returning to the country, he occupied the post of general counsel for Pan Am Airlines before devoting himself to writing his autobiography, The Spirit of St. Louis, which detailed his transatlantic crossing and won him the Pulitzer Prize in 1954. He died on August 26, 1974 in Hawaii. His famous monoplane is still displayed at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. The Lindbergh case remains one of the prime instances of child kidnapping of the 20th century to have received significant media attention and to have marked the rise in yellow journalism, which greatly contributed to its mystery, sensationalism, and macabre nature. Many years after the end of the trial and the execution of Bruno Hartmann, it was discovered that the ransom money was still in circulation and still being spent. But by whom? The answer to this day remains a mystery. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.